We're going to be in Luke chapter 11 this week as we continue in our series um, in, in the book of Luke. But before that, I just wanted to honor moms in my own way too. Uh, I've got two, two moms in particular at this stage of my life that are uh, so important to me. One is my wife who has just been heroic, especially this year in her fierce love for my children and in a season of life that has had some surprises and then some just milestones. And she's driving back right now with, with our kids after our oldest graduated from uh, college. She's coming back. I flew back to be with you here today. And, um, and so I just, my, my wife is, is an important mom in my life. And then my mom, I just wanted to give so many of you an update. You don't, she's been losing her memory and it's, it's all but gone at this point. I'm sad to report. She's, I'm happy to report. She's comfortable for uh, the most part and not uh, alarmed, which is what we're mostly praying for currently in this time. So, but that woman, as I think back through my life with her and her fierce love for me, her fierce love for God, I have so much of my faith uh, stability. If there is any stability in my faith to uh, I attribute that to my mom and her faith stability in a very challenging life that she had. And so I love her. And while she can't watch anymore and, and hear me, mom, I do love you. And I'm so grateful for you. You know, the, the, mother, the motherhood love um, is a part of that feminine love, that, that image of God that is only found in the feminine. And, and so when we honor that kind of love, we are honoring the image of God in a very unique way. That's what we're doing. And we need it, and we desire it, and I'm just going to give you, I'm going to do it, Luke. I've got one little extra sermon for you today that's my favorite um, capturing of that feminine part, that motherly part of, the, of God, okay? It's uh, when in First Thessalonians, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, a bunch of men are writing and they're writing how much they love these Christians that they've poured their lives into. And of course, in chapter 2 and 11, they say something like uh, that you would expect them to, to say. It says, for you know that we've dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children. Encouraging and challenging uh, and urging you to live life worthy of God. You'd expect these men to compare their love for these beloved disciples of theirs in a fatherly way, but it's not enough. They're, they're exploring their love for these precious people that they poured their lives into, and these men in a male-dominated society, they have to say in chapter 2, because fatherly love isn't enough, they say we, a bunch of men, we loved you, sorry, but we were gentle among you like a mother caring for her little children. A bunch of men have to go to the fierce motherly love to really capture the kind of love that they're feeling. Isn't that amazing? You ladies are important to us. You ladies are important to us. Whether you're a physical mom or not, the image of God in you is of vital importance. We could not do without it. And we need it. And we apologize for any way in which we've diminished it in any way, intentionally or unintentionally. Because that's not our heart, and it's sure not scriptures, and it's sure not God. We actually get a little shout out to Jesus' mom in chapter 11 today. So let's jump right in. Um, 
starting in verse 1 of chapter 11. One day, Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. He said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive anyone who sins against us. And lead us not into temptation. Then he said to them, Suppose one of you has a friend, and he goes to him at midnight and says, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread, because a friend of mine on a journey has come to me. I have nothing to set before him. Then the friend inside answers, Don't bother me. The door's already locked. My children are here in bed with me. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him the bread because he's his friend, yet because of the man's boldness, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. To he who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then... Though you're evil, know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So another distinction of Luke's gospel as opposed to the other gospels, Matthew, Mark, and John, they're all the story of teachings and journey and, and ministry of Jesus and his work. Luke emphasizes his prayer life, Jesus' prayer life, a little bit more than the others. And that's an interesting study. But this section gives us some instructions. Specific now, Luke is deciding to give some instruction to his readers by recording when Jesus gave some instruction to his disciples on how to pray. And that's what they asked for. Evidently, that's a thing. Hey, teach us to pray like John taught his disciples. Evidently, rabbis would do this. They would give their Uh, disciples, little model prayers in their estimation that are important, that capture how you should pray. But then unprompted, Jesus adds to the thing. He gives them that little expected model prayer on how to pray, but he goes on and gives them some additional information that they didn't ask for, and that is who you're praying to, what he's like. Evidently, how you view God as you pray to him is a part of the answer of how to pray. And so we get these two kind of things, how to pray and the kind of God that you get to pray to. So there's so much here. I wish I could just do the whole, whole sermon on this. I guess I could. I'm in charge up here, I guess a little bit, but I'm not going to because I want to get to the rest of chapter 11. There's a lot here, but just briefly, here's first the how. The first thing I want you to notice is it's God's interests first. We're we're a love first church. It kind of shows the priority we believe of God for his people. In prayer, Jesus is God first. He's God first. Yet you pray. I know you have needs and you're dependent on him and you have desires that you'd like. That's great. But the first thing you do is you pray to God for things God is interested in. First, he says, hallowed be your name. Hallowed is just the 
heavyweight word for holy, make holy. Holy means to set apart, to elevate, to take something that's mundane, that's in the world, and elevate it and make it divine, kind of transcendent. And what he prays to God and asks him to make holy is not his plans, not his desires, but his name. And the name of someone in God's name here, that's not like his name, Yahweh, right? That's not what he's saying. Make Yahweh the name, holy, right? We, it's the, the name of someone was about his whole character, his whole essence, his whole reputation. We still use the word name in this way sometimes. All you've got is your good name, okay? When my dad says that to me, he's not saying David Bryant. It's a good name. He's not talking about that. He's talking about my essence, my character, my reputation. So the request here is to make holy your character, your essence, who you are. Elevate it. Make it transcendent over everything. So this can be interpreted a couple ways. He's asking God to take his essence and make it holy. Let your character, God, set it apart and apply it to all the earth. And then a second way this can be taken is from a human person, let me make your name holy. Like, hallowed be your name. I'm doing that, and we need to do that. Let us as individuals and as people, let us take your character and set it apart and above everything else in our own lives. So that's an interest of his. God's the only character in the universe that can be self-centered and it be good for everyone. Right? He's the, he is the only one that he puts himself, he exalts himself, and we're asking him to do that because it's good for everyone when he does that. And then the second request is your kingdom come. Jesus has been preaching this his whole, the whole ministry so far in Luke in the first 10 chapters. We know that this is his agenda, is to bring his kingdom. He's announcing his kingdom. Well, we're supposed to pray that God does that too. Let your ways, let your rule be established. Remember, when you read the word kingdom in scripture, you should read kingship. Right? The kingship, the rule of God. is It's not a place. He's already made that clear. He's still going to have to explain it to his followers. But we're asking for him to rule. So after these two God-centered, God-first petitions, he then lists three of our needs. And... Uh, like I said, there's so much here, but let's just do it this way. I, I, I can see the past, the present, and the future all being addressed in this prayer, in this model prayer. He says, give us today our daily bread. Take care of me today. I remember one of my ministers said, that one of the greatest things I could teach my kids is to learn how to lean on God day by day. To just to depend on him, not on, you know, not on their savings, not on you know, the, the promises for the future of this world by men, but just on your prayer for what you need daily. So your present, your past is addressed when he says, forgive me, forgive me of my sins. Don't let me be anchored to my past, right? And then the future, right? Deliverance, lead me not into temptation, Take care of my future. Both of those, by the way, are so that we can live fully present in the day. And so we got a good, pretty good template for our own prayers here. First, when you pray, exalt God. Write yourself. Get out of yourself. And get into God. That's going to solve everything. If you don't believe it, try it. 
try it and make sure it's not true before you don't do it. Okay? God first. Exalt him in his interests. Then give God your day. Take care of your, 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 your present. Ask him to not anchor you in your past, but to heal it, even use it, that you be a good steward of it in your present. And ask him to take care of that future that so many of us do so much time worrying about. Steal that worry. Powerful here. But then he adds to this. That's how to pray there. That's what you asked for. A model prayer like John gave to his disciples. But now I got to tell you something else. Or you will not maximize what you have available in your prayer life with God. And that is the kind of God you're praying to. Now he's already, he's already hit him with the very first word in the model prayer when he says father. Something that would have been striking. This, this is the word Abba. And you need to know that Abba is like the most intimate word for daddy. Daddy, like this is one of the, when, when me and my wife fought to see what our kids would say first, daddy or mama, that, that's what happened in Arabic, right? The, the dads wanted to say Abba, Abba, it's daddy. I remember when I was preaching through prayer and I learned that. This early on in my ministry here, and I did a prayer in the way that Jesus modeled it for us. And I called God daddy. I got two or three phone calls. People in the audience of Christians offended. The one was most articulate when he said, I just feel like when you call God daddy, that it's, it's being irreverent. Isn't that striking? And maybe that strikes you. That the way Jesus teaches us to pray, you consider irreverent. It seems to me that reverence for the father would to be to address him in the way his son tells us to. What kind of poisonous trap have we gotten into that we have superimposed a reverence that we judge rather than using what Jesus teaches us to do? He wants your relationship intimate. And if that wasn't enough, he then goes on and he unpacks a little bit more about the intimacy in terms of fatherhood and in terms of friendship in these stories. He, he uses a parable and then he uses some dad jokes to make it really clear how you are allowed to approach God. So some people say the point of this parable of the uh, friend that comes in and you go to another friend because you don't have the mandatory, the high value of hospitality. You lay bread out for your friends. So you, everyone knows the rules of hospitality were big in the Middle East, so it's not unusual. This was a common scene, okay? And all the neighbors understood, if, if you don't have enough for hospitality, I need to help them because it's that important. But that doesn't mean they liked it all the time. Right? Your friend doesn't always like it. They all slept in the same room and got my kids asleep. Leave me be. I don't want to wake up my kids. Y'all know what that's like. And so still, because this guy's persistent, he gives him the bread and he's able to take care of this. Now, a lot of people say, and this isn't inappropriate, that this is about being persistent in prayer. I believe that's true. Here and in other places, we are called to be persistent. But the primary point of this is you know you know how even when your friend, your neighbor friend, is inconvenienced by the hospitality rules that they don't want to do it, they will. Even begrudgingly, even when it's inconvenient, but you can depend on them to be, to honor those hospitality rules. You know, because they know they'll need it one day too, and they know how important it is. He's saying, if you can depend on a reluctant friend and neighbor to perform the request for hospitality rules, how much more 
Can you depend on me as your friend? I'm eager for you to ask. I'm eager for you to knock on my door. I'm waiting for you to do that. I want to serve you. I want to help you. That's what he's saying. If you can depend on your reluctant friend to honor your request, how much more can you come to me? I'm not reluctant. I'm eager. So, he says, ask, seek, knock. If you do, he says it twice. Did you notice this? He says, ask, you'll receive, seek, you'll find, knock. The door will be opened. It will. And then he says, he moves to the kind of person that you need to be with God. The asker, the seeker, the knocker. Approach him as an eager friend. Sorry about that. <laughs> and then he gets this, he uses this funny dad joke to explain that if you, dads out there, who are evil, okay, so this, this is convicting, He's universally saying, there's no comparison. Y'all are flawed human beings. Pick the best dad you got out there. The best dad who gives it the the greatest effort. It's still going to be tainted. Okay? So if you, who are evil, you long to give good gifts to your children, and, and you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more then with God, if you see him right, as your father who is good, capital G, who is perfect, and who is your father, how much more, how much more will you, can you expect him to give good gifts to his children? So, approach God intimately as the greatest of all eager friends and as the goodest of all good fathers. How's your prayer life? That's what this part of chapter 11 should challenge you in. How's your prayer life? And when you pray, how do you approach God? Those are both super important according to Luke and according to Jesus. So then we shift gears a little in verse 14. Jesus was driving out a demon that was mute. When the demon left, the man who had been mute spoke and the crowd was amazed. But some of them said... It's by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that he's driving out demons. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and a house divided against itself will fall. If Satan is divided against himself, how can his kingdom stand? Plus, he says, I say this to you because you claim that I drive out demons by Beelzebub. Now, if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, then whom do your guys drive them out by? Right? Who do your followers drive them out? So then they'll be your judges. But if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then sure enough, the kingdom of God has come upon you. So this scene here is, we we see the driving out of a demon, but it's less about that, more about Jesus confronting and warning these Jews who we've been introduced to, the Pharisees and the, the lawyers, the ones who are all about enforcing the rule of law as they understand it, converting people to the law as a conversion to God. And he's confronting and warning them now, okay, those who are resistant. So as people are flocking to Jesus, that's what's happening. Remember, they're coming according to Luke for three reasons. One, the, the good news message. They've never heard the kingdom of God presented like Jesus does. It's attractive and winsome. 
That's not how any of the other religious leaders do it. So they're coming for that reason. They're coming because physical healing is happening. Who wouldn't come? If the kingdom's coming in and breaking in like that, wouldn't that pull you in? And a third reason, evil is being confronted and defeated through the casting out of demons. So these lawyers, these Pharisees, they're... Their, their whole world is being assaulted. The whole status quo. Their understanding of scripture is being challenged. And their influence over the people is being stolen. So they're trying to dismantle, discredit Jesus. They don't go after the good news message. They don't go after the healing. How do you fight against that? They know that he's casting out demons, but they come up with a slanderous accusation for how that's happening to discredit him. They say it's by the prince of demons, Beelzebub. That's just a... That's just a code word, a, a shorthand for Satan. Okay? It means Lord of Flies. Some of you were dating ourselves, but you remember that movie. That's where it comes from. Beelzebub means Lord of the Flies. And, and it's just a, a generic term for Satan. And so he argues back. First thing he does is he argues back. He outlawyers them to dismantle the slander. He uses two unarguable arguments. He says, so... Keep in mind, everybody here knows, exorcism is an assault on Satan's power. Why would Satan assault his own power, is what he's saying. They all know Satan wants to win. He would not take ground that he is, take the ground that he's taken in the world and then fight it and give it up. He wouldn't do that. They knew that was crazy. And on top of that, what about your exorcists? If you're saying it's Beelzebub that gets fruit like this, then then it's Beelzebub that your people are using. So their testimony against you. So after he dismantles all that, he then takes the opportunity to once again speak plainly what is happening. It's the breaking of the power of Satan by the power of God. The kingdom coming. That's what's happening. And so then he addresses and unpacks this a little more specifically. He says in verse 21, when a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, His possessions are safe. But when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away that armor in which the man trusted and divides up the spoils. And then he says this, he who is not with me is against me and who does not gather with me scatters. So in this, Satan's the strong man. He's the one that's been ruling for a long time on the earth. Someone stronger has come. Someone stronger has come and is kicking him out. And he says, if you... Are not he, and then he says, there's no Switzerland here. Y'all need to understand, if you're fighting against me, you are fighting with the enemy. If you, there's no neutral observers, let alone slanderous accusers. Even if you claim to be of God, and you're not with me, he says, in the way I'm teaching you and showing you, then you are messing things up. You're not bringing, gathering people into this kingdom. You're scattering. And then he describes something. He uses this demonic exorcism as as a challenge and a parable. It says, when an evil spirit comes out of a man, it goes through arid places. Arid means waterless. It goes through arid places, seeking rest and doesn't find it. Then it says, I'll return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house swept clean and in order. Then it goes and takes seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that man is worse than the first. As Jesus was saying things, a woman in the crowd 
called out Happy Mother's Day to Mary. He says, blessed is the mother who gave you birth and nursed you. And he replied, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. Okay. So Jesus is using the commonly understood idea back then that the deserts were kind of haunted with evil spirits roaming around. And so if, if an evil spirit gets cast out of someone, it's, it's wandering around. Okay, And it's not done looking for a place to live. And if it can't find a place, then it may go back to the house it was kicked out. It's just to check. And if it finds it, yeah, it's cleaned up and in order because it hasn't been there wreaking havoc, but it's cleaned up in order, but it's empty. It's empty. So it comes back, it gains more spiritual power than it had before, and it ends up worse than it was. When I first read this, I went, what is, it, it almost seems like then don't cast out the spirit. That's what it seems like. Don't cast out the evil spirit because it's just going to end up worse. What he's saying here to these Jews with a rich Jewish heritage, he's saying this isn't the first effort at reformation in the Jewish household. Many times, going way back to the kings and prophets, there have been reformations called for and a cleaning up of the nation of Israel and the high places and the false gods cleaned, cleaned out and things kind of get back more in orderly fashion. But if you don't replace it with the spirit of God, with the kingdom advancing word and obey it and move in to that, then the house is orderly, but it's empty and evil's going to come back rushing in. It's going to end up worse than before. It's happened over and over in your history and it can happen again now. And so this weird call out from this woman that Luke puts in here kind of explains to me what, what he was trying to say here. He, he said, I mean, this would leave us wondering, except she says, to be your mom has to be the most blessed thing. And he goes, no. And he makes sense of what just happened in this story from booting this evil spirit out. He says the most blessed people are the ones who hear God's word and obey it. That's it. Listen, when you are healed, when your worry is addressed, when you're delivered from temptation, when you're forgiven for your past and your present is good, that's not for you to just have an orderly life and to feel the relief and then watch TV because you've got some peace and some space and some margin. He does all that so that you can then take this word of God and follow it. Fill the house. It's not just for you to clean up, you know, and get back to your, you know, mundane life that's just, ah. No, it's to fill your life with, with life, with the most abundant life, which is the kingdom life. And he says, that's the greatest thing. That's the person who's blessed. The one who hears the word of God, the, the essence of God, the kingdom message, God's very heart, and obeys it. That life is not just a clean and orderly house. It's filled with the spirit in a way that evil can't get in anymore. That's what the call here is. So, are you hearing and obeying God's instructions for you? Are you filling yourself with, whether it's the defeat of sin or the addition of ministry of some sort, right? Are you filling your life? Are you hearing and obeying the word of God? God doesn't heal you and deliver you just so you can feel all that, so you can 
watch the next Netflix series. He wants to actively advance the kingdom in and through you. That's what will protect you. So the rest of chapter 11, we're not going to read it for the sake of time. It's a lot though. And I I do want to summarize what's happening here because we know he doesn't like the the Pharisees' ways. We know he doesn't like the lawyer's uh, agenda. He he doesn't like the, 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 the Jewish leader's practice of godliness. We know that so far in Luke. Here is where, right here in Luke, where he articulates where they're in error. He's going to be specific about what he doesn't like about their way of following God. And this is important. Make no mistake. Luke records this by the Holy Spirit and Jesus says it so that we don't fall into these same traps because there is a modern version for every one of these mistakes. So what does he condemn specifically in the Pharisees? What is it he doesn't like about them? Here it is. First, false piety. Fake spirituality. Pretending to be devoted to God on the outside when deep down there's nothing real. Nothing tangible. It's in verse 39. He says, now then you Pharisees, you clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside, untouched, unchanged, just full of what everyone else in the world's full of. Greed, wickedness. You hear us talk about all the time, taking the mask off. It's because that's where we got to get the spirit get to. It's not just a cleanup of the outside. Second thing is attention to minutia, religious minutia, even if it's right, at the expense of the major themes, at the expense of the, the meaningful things that will lead to some of the minutia. But when you use the minutia as a smokescreen from dealing with and transforming into adherence to the major things, that's wrong. He says in verse 42, woe to you Pharisees, because you give a got a tenth of your mint and your rue and all other kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice. You neglect the love of God. That's, that's the most important command. You, you tie even down to these little middle things. That's good. He says, do that, but do it as an expression of the major thing, not as a smokescreen, a replacement for the other. That's a problem. He then says, the desire to, for praise from other people rather than from God. Verse 43, woe to you Pharisees because you love the most important seats in the synagogue and greetings in the marketplaces. They are getting their esteem. They are feeling like they are valuable or even maybe spiritually right if everyone else around them esteems them spiritually. So, you know how easy it is to get the esteem of others without actually deserving it? I mean, we've got awesome Facebook posts that do that, right? And Instagram and stories and tweets and all kinds of things where we can, oh man, that guy, there's something. He doesn't like that. When you desire the praise and esteem of others. Fourth, making the demands of faithfulness to God into a burden for others. This has got to be one of the pet peeves of mine. It's when Christianity is not presented as good news. It's not presented in a winsome way. That is a way, the way Jesus does it. Come to me, all you who are weary and labor, I'll give you rest. 
is the great invitation. That's the banner of the invitation. Everything that you say that doesn't serve that great invitation is a wrong presentation, and that's what they're doing. They're presenting it in a way that's not winsome. Verse 46, if you're unclear on this, woe to you because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry and you yourselves won't even lift a finger to help them. Then next is rejecting God's prophets. Legit messages of God would get delivered to these Jewish folks and they reject them. He says, I don't like that. In verse 49, he says, God in his wisdom said, I'll send them prophets and apostles. Some of them, They will kill and others they will persecute. What's our application of that? It's when you hear, whether it's a book you read, a class you attended, a sermon you heard, right? A podcast, personal study or reading in the book of Luke and you get convicted. But maybe you don't actually kill N.T. Wright when he convicts you in your reading. Maybe you don't physically persecute him, but inside your heart, you, you do to discredit the conviction because it is just it's too inconvenient for you it's messing with your life the way you like it and so you kill those voices of God you kill those teachings you persecute them and make them unapplicable to you then lastly he points out possessing the knowledge of God's teaching but not practicing it or helping others practice it. Here's how he says it. I know it's a little clunky. He says, woe to you experts in the law because you've taken away the key to knowledge. Remember, they have the knowledge. They know the Bible. They've got it memorized. But they've taken away the key that unlocks its power. You yourselves have not entered and you have hindered those who were entering. You're not practicing what you know and when others actually get it and I, through my spirit, even maybe through you, deliver the right key to that knowledge. They start practicing. You pull them from that. You pull them from that and you, you get them into what you, the way you think. And he says, no, I hate that about you guys. Possessing the knowledge of God's teaching but not practicing it or helping others do so. So here's what I want to do to just finish up here. There, there's a lot there in those last, the last half of this chapter. And I see a connection to the first half. The first half And this is what I noticed. This is what hit me. The first half is about a true, real, intimate, life-transforming, weighty, significant, unarguably honest and provable in your own heart relationship with God. That's what we all want, right? If he's for real, we want to know for real. The second half of this chapter is why you won't. If you try to follow God in this plastic, superficial, unimpactful way, not only will it seem fake to the world, it is. It is fake. We need a true, honest, in the first two sections of chapter 11, amazingly, Take the two proven, historically proven baselines of any real relationship with God in any person you've ever read or known. Prayer and Bible study. Isn't that amazing? Look, 
It seems too simplistic. I often buck against it. There's more to it than just prayer and Bible study. But what I was convicted of here today, I want to say to you, it's never less. It is never less than that. And if you think that that's just too simple, then you aren't doing it. Because it is the most probing, costly, life-changing, life-giving exercise that you will ever do to have a real authentic prayer life and enter into that mysterious fatherly friendship with God where it's so real and it's become so real that when somebody says, hey, calling God daddy, that's irreverent, you'll laugh inside because you know. You know because it's real and it's weighty. And you have fallen in love with God's word. Not, not just the Bible, but the Bible is his written word, but the word of God is Jesus. And you have fallen so in love with Jesus and obeying him that you can't wait to find the next part of your life to kill today so that you can obey him and find out this, the blessings that come. And you will never, ever suffer or go back to or be distracted by the second half of chapter 11 ever again. It just feels so wrong. It's so obviously fake and not the point. So I want to use those last verses to just do a quick few questions to finish up. Let me ask our elders and our ministers to go ahead and move around the room. Thanks for bearing with me today, church. There's a lot to go through here, but let me ask them to move. And if you're just needing an interpersonal touch today. That's what these men and women move like this for in the middle of service, okay? To, to let you know we're, we're your people. We want, we want to offer you that touch. So how about you? Do you clean up on Sunday? You know, do you clean up maybe in front of your kids? Do you clean up in front of your spouse? Do you clean up in front of your parents? but there's no substance deep down. There's no penetration of the spirit in your heart that produces legit peace and joy. The feeling of rightness between you and God, between you and yourself, between you and people. Or do you pay attention to the small things that cost little, to be honest? while neglecting the things that cost you everything? Like specifically in his example, do you throw the money in the plate because that costs you little? That's, that's right to do. That's good to do. But not if you're using it as a substitute or smokescreen of what that's supposed to be an expression of, and that's justice and love of God. That's wrong. Do you look for, and your answer to this is yes. Do you look for affirmation from the people around you? I do. Confess, I do. Do you value that praise in an inappropriate way rather than having your audience of one that you get your affirmation and your praise from? And when you hear something or read something that you know, nobody has to tell you, it's from God. Some life-challenging critique or some life-giving 
invitation to change, to stop that sin or to start that selfless, good kingdom work to fill your house? Do you kill that message just as quick as you can? Do you just give me out of here, give me to lunch? Do you kill it? Today's call, today's call from Luke is to a real life of real devotion. A call maybe for the first time in your life to real prayer, to discover the real relationship, to really listen to the word of God, to, with intent, to apply it and obey it and open up the vast landscape of the kingdom as a kingdom citizen that's weighty, real, provable in your own heart, in that spiritual way, to know God personally and intimately, to care about it and to invest in it. Let's pray. God, if, if I were to die today, I want everyone that I had any ear of theirs, any influence, I want them to have a legit, God-honest, real, weighty, convincing to themselves first and light-bringing to others authentic, genuine relationship with you. The whole point of you sending Jesus, the whole point of your spirit protecting and and preserving and presenting the word, God, I pray that we would come to know you. Jesus, let us come to know you. In your name we pray and we sing. Amen.